Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. This week in the New York Times, another bombshell report on President Trump's financial house of cards. A decade-long period of crushing losses and a tax write-off of a staggering $1 billion. Their findings are eye-popping, stunning. There's a lot of different adjectives you could use. Reporters Russ Butner and Suzanne Craig poured over transcripts of Trump's taxes from 1985 to 1994 and found that he had, quote, lost more money than nearly every other individual American taxpayer. Every year that we looked at, he lost money. It's unbelievable. We would have thought at least in one of the years that we saw, maybe the year he wrote Art of the Deal, he would have made money. He didn't. He was just bleeding money. This from the swashbuckling dealmaker who'd famously become a fixture on the Forbes 400 list of wealthiest Americans. Very famously. He's young, he has Robert Redford good looks, he can, he's conservative, and he's rich. I'm talking about Larry King's guest, Donald Trump. Just has enough money to give everyone in the audience tonight a million dollars. But if his business failures and his debts were so immense, how did he get on the Forbes 400 list to begin with? The answer is by being Donald Trump. What I think you might want to do is at some point, maybe after that, before you write your little article, maybe you want to call me again and sit down because I'd like to discuss a couple of things. That was Trump in 1982 on the phone with Forbes reporter Jonathan Greenberg, whose unenviable task was to evaluate Trump's claims of fabulous riches. He botched the job, but in fairness, he was depending heavily on an unreliable source. The unreliable source was Donald Trump. Who wanted the world to see not a house of cards, but a gilded palace. And thus commenced decades of lies, threats, lawsuits, and a bizarre codependence with the media. Now a freelance journalist, publisher, and novelist, Greenberg was present at creation, the Ur-Lie, the origin myth upon which a 37-year long con was built. The young developer, Greenberg says, understood the pricelessness of validation from the People magazine of capitalism. It became his obsession to lobby the reporters of the Forbes 400 and Malcolm Forbes himself. In that first year, you settled on a figure for Donald Trump's net worth at that time. What was it? $100 million. That was the cutoff to be on the list. But with some distance, uh, you've been able to ascertain what his actual net worth was at that time. Distance and time. It was under $5 million. He claimed in those days that he was in control of what had been his father's fortune, and that wasn't true at all. That's true. That was one of the big lies, and we didn't find out until his father had died. And of course, Everything comes out in time. The other lie was how many apartments they owned. They actually never owned more than 10,000 apartments, but he inflated that figure. And most importantly, and germane, Bob, to this, what we see in the New York Times, was that he inflated his cash flow on the buildings. And that was his MO. What Trump is very good at is finding out what it takes to deceive, and then promoting that deception in a way that will be very hard to disprove. In 1982, you gave him $100 million. In 83, 
he got a raise to $200 million in the Forbes list. And then the next year, 1984, you get a call from the Trump organization. The caller tells you he's a VP and he has some juicy info. What's the info? Well, the call was actually, it was my annual interview with Donald Trump and his secretary, Norma Fordera, said that I'm not going to meet Trump in person this year. The VP of finance, John Barron, would schedule a call with me and give me all the information I needed. Okay, what's your first name, by the way? John. John. John Barron. So I picked up the phone, and it was John Barron. And, and, and I'd like to talk to you off the record, if I can, just to make your thing easier. Okay, sure. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Answering all the questions I had about Trump's holdings and his net worth and all the success that he had had, as well as his relationship with his father. And his claim as to the $200 million figure from the year before? Oh, he said that we were way low, you know, that he was worth many times the amount we had had in the past. And he proved it by going through building after project after project and speaking of how much money these projects were turning off for Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, as we now know, John Barron was actually Trump himself, lying about his identity to lie about his balance sheet. What number was he pushing and what did Forbes end up going with? He was pushing $2 billion. He was saying that he was worth more than any other person in real estate, that he never signed personally on his debt. We ended up going with $600 million, and we took Trump's father off the list because one of the things John Barron told me is that Trump had consolidated all his father's assets in his name. Are you saying that... Perhaps for tax purposes, it's been, the ownership has been transferred to Donald Trump? Correct. Uh, That's correct. Okay, and, and would you say, you know, in excess of 90% of the ownership of the? I'd say in excess of 90 In fact, well, it's really closer to even the, the ultimate, but it's in excess of 90%, yes. So instead of splitting $200 million or half the value of the estate between one and the other, we gave all of the value to Donald Trump. Yet, if the Times report is correct, he actually at that time had a negative net worth. He was more than $50 million in debt, which, you know, if I understand this correctly, Jonathan, would have made him literally one of the poorest men in America. That's true. He was overextended. He overpaid for his properties and his construction, and he was having enormous tax losses based upon the the debt service of the buildings, because interest rates were very high during that period. Now, I, I have to ask you, the fact that this employee, Trump's secretary, set you up with, John Barron, had the same voice as Trump, might have been a red flag. And also, didn't most mega-rich people, in your experience, actually want not to appear on the Forbes list? Wasn't the whole lobbying thing strange in itself? The editors looked at me of the Washington Post when I first played the tape for them before my big story in the Post last year. And they looked at me like, um, are you an idiot? You know, when they heard the tape, it sounds exactly like Donald Trump. Nobody could anticipate something that nobody had ever done before, which is talking to a national media outlet pretending to be somebody else using your own voice. His outrageous behavior is 
off the charts of what anyone else would do. In terms of other people, there was a damned if you do, damned if you don't approach to it, which means that if you're off the list, people want to know, hey, I thought you were worth 500 million and their cutoff is 200 million. Why are you not on there, Bob? Or if you try to fake your way on and Forbes finds out, which it would over the years, you're taken off the list and seen as a promoter and what went wrong? I guess your business isn't going so well. I guess we won't lend you $100 million for this new shopping center that you want to build, Bob. So most people, to the extent that they participate with Forbes, they participate in order to help ensure accuracy. So only Donald Trump, he's an outlier. There are very few people who can try to game the system. Now, you have penned over the years a number of mea culpas about getting suckered in this scheme. So, you know, let us just put aside for the moment questions of journalistic negligence and, and go to the supply side of the, the conversation, which is, tell me again what's in it for Trump to start building this lie in 1982 and leveraging the fake assets over the years? With ordinary business people, you need to show a cash flow statement that includes all the debt. What Trump really did was use the Forbes 400 and said, well, look, they're the best experts. Here's my statement. Here's what they say. His own statement showed even more. Then he said, well, Forbes has me for 600 million. You know, if you don't want to believe me, look at them. And if they said and this is, what, this is what the gray area is that has yet to come forth in the media. If they would say, well, listen, we need a statement of profit and loss, he'd say, I don't have time for that, Bob of Citibank. I'm going to go to J.P. Morgan. I'm going to go to Chase. And, you know, and I'll get you fired, by the way, too, because I've shown you everything you need. It was enough for Chemical Bank. Why is it enough for you? And, and so it's a combination of threats and lies. And the lie or the deception was that Forbes had validated this information independently. Why do they need to bother him for more info? By time, when journalists began reporting the depth of his financial woes, he also actually sued one author for libel. Uh, he lost the case. And he threatened to sue others. So crucial to his house of cards was the illusion of great wealth and power, right? Absolutely. Forbes took him off the list for five years, but The Art of the Deal was a huge bestseller. He was cemented in the public consciousness as a tycoon. Okay, Donald Trump is here. You're on the, uh, the cover of the uh, new issue of People magazine. I don't know what I'm beating around the bush here. I don't know why you're being so goofy about this. It says on the cover, you're a billionaire. It does 41. say that. Yeah. yeah. So would you says it, I would have to believe it. When People <laughs> says that. Which got him funding for a series of catastrophic ventures, Trump Airlines, Trump Casinos, Trump University, Trump Meat. A billion dollars of 1990s losses, as we now see reported in the Times, uh, losses of other people's money. And he wrote this fiction to the White House. So, <laughs> Jonathan, it, it's all your fault, right? <laughs> it's, all, it's all my fault, Bob. Had I only known... Forbes just came out and they said I'm worth four and a half or five billion dollars. People still believe him. It is our fault. He's the only one who ever played 
the system like this. And people continue to underestimate the depth of his deceit and how far he'll go with a lie. This Forbes 400 was tremendously successful for Trump, obviously. I guess we should not ignore the fact that it was also vastly successful for Forbes magazine, no? Absolutely. It was the biggest success of any project Forbes ever worked on in in its 100-year history. We made celebrities out of billionaires. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Jonathan Greenberg is an investigative reporter who's written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, and, of course, Forbes. For three years in the 80s, he helped bring us the Forbes 400. Coming up, a whole other slant on big money and taxes. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. The New York Times revelations were but one part of, excuse the expression, a taxing week in the halls of power. While the Times was documenting Trump's huge write-offs, the president was fighting on multiple fronts to keep the rest of his tax filings secret. The New York State Senate passed legislation on Wednesday to allow Trump's state tax returns, which should mirror federal filings, to be turned over to Congress. And next week, a federal judge will hear arguments in a case over whether the House Oversight Committee can subpoena Trump's accounting firm, Mazers USA. But if you don't happen to be a besieged president with fancy accountants, please don't feel left out. Congress has been thinking about you, too, with a piece of legislation called the Taxpayer First Act. It has sailed through the House with bipartisan support, a bill in Congress with bipartisan support, and was poised to do the same in the Senate. It's practically unheard of. How in these fractious times could there be such cross-the-aisle comedy? Yeah, yeah, well. A lot of people complaining that despite the name, the Taxpayer First Act, this is really a way for H&R Block and TurboTax, which is owned by Intuit, who have lobbied hard to sort of maintain their duopoly on online tax filing. That's because in the bill, there's a provision that would have barred the IRS from ever offering an online platform to allow Americans to compute and file their taxes for free. The IRS currently has a memorandum of understanding with H&R Block and TurboTax that it will not offer its own online filing system in exchange for them offering free filing services to taxpayers who make less than $66,000 a year. The bill is now awaiting a vote in the Senate. Yes, those private tax prep titans do offer a free service for eligible taxpayers, 
but not so as you'd notice. Prospective users are so successfully diverted from the free service and toward paid services on these platforms that less than 2% of eligible taxpayers take advantage. This bill, which would preserve that status quo in amber, might be more accurately named the Tax Preparation Industry Upsell Act. (laughs) Well, I hadn't thought of that. I wish I had. Dennis Ventry is a law professor at the University of California, Davis, where he specializes in tax policy. He spoke to us recently for a podcast-only episode. Yeah, we release all kinds of extras on our podcast feed. And he guided us into the labyrinth of free file and its many trap doors. Take, for instance, Ventry's own student. She had used free file last year, then again... This year, she qualified by income. She only had about $15,000 worth of adjusted gross income. And when she got to inputting something about educational expenses, the particular provider software indicated that she needed to purchase a fee-based upsell deluxe edition. When she got to her very nominal small business income, same thing. Sorry, you need to purchase a deluxe edition if you want to continue using us. And that's why only 1.6% of qualifying taxpayers free-filed in 2018. But wait. There's more. As ProPublica recently reported, at least five of the for-profit tax preparers nominally offering free file were so eager for users not to take advantage, they embedded their websites with code to render the service invisible to Google and other search engines. That ProPublica reporting has inspired legal action. This week, the Los Angeles city attorney Mike Fuhr filed a lawsuit against H&R Block and Intuit, as he told NBC. We allege that they have steered these low-income taxpayers into paying for services they should have gotten for free. As recently as April 26th, the IRS stood by Free File as a, quote, successful program and partnership that's benefited millions of taxpayers. But last week, the agency finally launched an investigation into the program. For a long time, Ventry says, the IRS had been unwilling to exercise such oversight or even curiosity at all. They can't answer the question why less than half of all taxpayers who use free file and are eligible to use it again the following year don't actually use the program. They don't take a more active role during filing season actually going on and testing out the provider's software through mock returns and using different profiles of taxpayers to see how the the software actually reacts and if, in fact, that upselling is going on, the extent to which it's going on. And so one is left with the conclusion, maybe uh, the conclusion that is reluctant, at least as far as I'm concerned, because I'm I'm very pro-IRS, I'm a fan of the agency, is that they really just don't care about this program from the standpoint of providing that consumer taxpayer protection, and they're, they're much happier turning it over to private industry. I want to ask you about the whole notion of an online free system for filing particularly short-form taxes. Uh, In theory, at least, that makes sense, does it not? In theory, the the arrangement whereby private sector companies partner with the IRS or, for that matter, with a state tax agency and assist low-income and middle-income taxpayers – In theory, that kind of partnership could work just fine. It just has failed. 
and it's not working. It doesn't mean that it can't work, but this current system is not working. And so if we're going to put that permanently in the Internal Revenue Code, it just doesn't make any sense. And another one of your reservations is that should this be enshrined in the U.S. tax code, it would erase the responsibility for the IRS and the the various vendors to periodically examine how the program is working. The IRS, as the federal agency that's charged with protecting taxpayers and upholding taxpayer rights, has over the years failed to provide sufficient oversight of the program, notwithstanding calls for it to do so from, for instance, the National Taxpayer Advocate, consumer rights groups, the IRS Advisory Council, and then independent researchers as well. It is definitely true that the IRS is not in a position, even if they wanted to, not in a position to create and administer the kind of program that it would take to replace the current free file program because of insufficient resources that Congress has has given the IRS. I mean, indeed, the budget since 2011 has been slashed by 16% as, you know, adjusted for inflation. But there's another component to this, and it's just that the IRS has become overly reliant on industry, just generally speaking, the tax filing services firms. And what I mean by that is the IRS needs these firms They need private sector tax services firms to assist it in implementing new tax laws, in updating forms, updating new provisions like hurricane disaster relief provisions that might be enacted by Congress even mid-tax filing season. And most importantly, the IRS has partnered with the private sector in um, a partnership called the IRS Security Summit, whereby the IRS, state tax agencies, and private sector services firms combat cybercrime and tax-related identity theft. And it has been wildly successful. Indeed, such tax-related identity theft is down about 25%. And so this partnership has gotten very cozy, so cozy that the IRS is very reluctant to disturb that at all. The Free File Alliance is an industry group whose doublespeak name suggests the opposite of its goals. Led by for-profit tax preparers like Intuit and H&R Block, it has showered money on Democrats and Republicans in Congress along to the very brink of getting its pet legislation passed in Congress. But a year ago, the last time this provision had sailed through the House and awaited action by the Senate, Dennis Ventry and his colleagues sprang into action. I pulled together a bunch of folks that I know cared about this issue, and we started reaching out to a handful of different Senate offices and going around and trying to educate them about the policymakers, the legislators, their staffs, about how free file was a failed program that harmed taxpayers and that codifying it would be a significant problem. And part of that educational process involved publishing a couple op-eds, one that ran in The Hill and the other that ran in uh, Politico, and then a long piece that I published in a publication called Tax Notes, which is sort of a leading tax policy journal that uh, policymakers in Washington are very familiar with. And it worked, but then something else happened. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Within a week of those publications coming out, I received a Public Records Act request through the California Public Records Act from a law firm that was representing some requester. That requester, it turns out, was the Free File Alliance. The industry lobby. The request asked for all of my uh, materials in my possession, including texts, emails, written documents, voice messages, etc., dating all the way back to January 1st of 2018 that had anything to do with the Free File Alliance. 
and also named individuals explicitly that they thought that I might have been in communication with, including individuals that, but for their association with me, would never have been subject to such a request because they were at private institutions and not at public institutions. One last thing, Dennis. Uh, What's going to happen? Well, that remains to be seen. This is like the most intimate relationship that you can have with the government, at least for the 155 million taxpayers who file every year. I mean, they don't interact with their federal government, any other agency, the way that they interact with the IRS. It is an intimate kind of interaction. It happens every single year, whether people want to or not. And to the extent that that can be improved upon, it seems like that's an important kind of pursuit. Dennis, thank you. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. Dennis Ventry is a law professor specializing in tax policy at the University of California, Davis. Ventry says he hasn't gotten any more records requests since the episode last year. The requester may have been chastened by a New York Times piece that ran with the headline, Industries Turn Freedom of Information Requests on Their Critics. It's a problem that pits a good thing, public records laws, against another good thing unfettered research at public universities. The California legislature recently tried to untangle that Gordian knot, and our producer Alana Casanova-Burgess looked into the effort. The records request for Dennis Ventry's emails came while he was in Washington, D.C. Well, I hadn't received one before, and so it freaked me out a little bit. He had just been at a meeting of the IRS Advisory Council, in which the Free File Alliance, representing some for-profit tax preparers, had given a presentation. I was freaked out, because then I had to hop on a plane immediately, and I couldn't really talk to anybody. I landed and spent, like, you know, hours, until the wee hours of the morning going through my emails, just to see what was there. What would something bad have been, you know? I mean, these are my very close colleagues um, at different universities that I've had relationships with for a long time, so we're talking like friends talk. Scientists have long been looking for a solution to this problem of essentially fishing expeditions, you know, attempts not to seek the truth or reveal misconduct, but to find something to embarrass a researcher. Michael Halpern is with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he's been advocating for legislation to address the problem of what he calls the exploitation of public records laws. Someone is talking about how they're interpreting a specific data set and their colleague says, you know, I don't think you're looking at the whole picture here. Um, I think you're missing all of these critical components in your analysis. That's healthy in science. But taken out of context, he says, the spin will read like this. The scientists don't even agree on what the critical components of the analysis are here. Exhibit A of this kind of distortion is what's known as climate gate. That's when, in 2009, hacked emails to and from climate researchers at the University of East Anglia were released. The hall included correspondence with U.S. scientists, notably Michael Mann, then at the University of Virginia. Exchanges they had about data were twisted by climate denial groups. And after a number of investigations, all of the researchers and their work was found to be solid, but the damage had been done. If you thought the toxic clouds of climate gate had lifted, well, think again. It's gone all sort of polluted here in Copenhagen. Scientists had been sent a message that every email, every single peer review comment uh, would be poured over and misrepresented to 
put forth an agenda. After the media maelstrom, Mann was issued a subpoena from the Virginia Attorney General, Ken Cuccinelli, and a public records request from a conservative think tank that's now called the Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Well, you know, it isn't what I signed up for when I decided to get a degree in uh, applied math and physics and go on to study climate science. Michael Mann speaking to MSNBC's Chris Hayes. I didn't realize that I would be at the center of uh, a widespread attack, an effort to undermine the credibility of not just me, but my scientific colleagues in a cynical effort to discredit concern for climate change. Mann fought the records request in court for years and eventually won. But the tactic of trying to use those requests to silence or embarrass public university professors took off. Eric Lipton is a New York Times investigative reporter who often uses records requests himself. He's seen the issue evolve over the past decade or so. This was particularly frequently used during the Obama administration and the debate over climate change. Conservative groups and coal industry lawyers used it. Then some of the liberal environmental groups began to seek emails from university professors at state institutions who questioned the reality of climate change, seeking to see what correspondence they had with industry players. From there, it metastasized. For example, were pesticide and genetically modified seed companies funding university professors was the organic industry funding university professors who were opponents of genetically modified foods. There have been many examples in recent years. A gun rights group requested records from professors researching the effect of lead bullets. A conservative group requested emails from a law professor who had criticized Jeff Sessions. Pharmaceutical companies and soda companies and advocacy groups request materials. And so do reporters. Take, for instance, a 2016 WBEZ investigation which uncovered how a University of Illinois professor was discussing where checks should be sent for his advocacy. The financial arrangement was not disclosed. Emails show he traveled in the U.S. and Asia to speak about genetically modified foods. At the same time, he was getting tens of thousands of dollars from GMO giant Monsanto Company to take those trips and do, quote, outreach. And there's the case of a child psychiatrist who enrolled kids younger than 13 in a study on lithium and then tried to cover up the misconduct. And the case of how the Koch brothers donated money to George Mason University and then were given a voice in hiring and firing professors. All investigations that used information gleaned from records requests. I think the question is, what is the cost of the current method of unearthing misconduct in that way? You know, it's, it's basically suspicionless searches for everybody all the time. Claudia Polsky is the director of the Environmental Law Clinic at UC Berkeley and author of a paper published last year called Open Records, Shuttered Labs, Ending Political Harassment of Public University Researchers. She says, yes, there are instances of wrongdoing, but... There are huge collateral consequences to the ways public records requests are being used against researchers, many of whom have done nothing wrong but are chilled in their research, pulled off task for no reason, perhaps moved to a state with more favorable records laws. That's happened. Perhaps defect from the university for private practice. That's happened. You don't see any of that. What you see is, say, the one scandal out of the 50 records requests that, you know, caught a fish. You know, scandal is visible. Chill is not visible. Laws regarding public university transparency vary state to state. In Pennsylvania, for instance, the state's higher education systems are generally exempt from the public records law. 
There was recently an effort to address the issue in California, an influential state with an enormous public university system. The proposal was to carve out an exemption for public university researchers, meaning their correspondence and their unpublished research methods would be shielded from open records requests. Polsky supported it in a hearing last month. AB 700 is a careful solution that I've endorsed, along with more than 180 academics across California in every academic discipline. Also at that hearing was Kevin Baker of the California ACLU. We don't believe that you can take the important tool of the California Public Records Act from the people that you don't think are using it appropriately without also taking it away from those who use it for important purposes. And for that reason, we remain opposed. Thank you. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press has come out against the bill, calling it well-intentioned but ill-considered. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, a digital rights group, is also opposed, as is the California News Publishers Association. Several animal rights groups say the bill would hide inhumane research methods. In California, the Public Records Act explicitly states that, quote, secrecy is antithetical to a democratic system. Whitney Prout is staff attorney at the California News Publishers Association. She and other opponents said they're willing to refine the bill so it works for both sides. But, I mean, we're certainly not there yet, and maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. The bill's supporters stress that disciplinary records would still be accessible, as would correspondence between researchers and funders, so watchdogs could still investigate financial influence. Prout doesn't buy that. That's not sufficient, because all it would take is creating one intermediary along the way. A middleman, in other words, who would represent the funder seeking to influence the research. And those communications could be secret. Plus, there are already exemptions to address unreasonable, harmful requests. And researchers have had success in using them in court. It's losing that flexibility, changing the default setting to no disclosure, that makes journalists I spoke to for this piece nervous about the effort in California. It completely strips away any of that flexibility or case-by-case analysis for a court to say, okay, what's going on in this situation? Are there compelling interests here that might call for the disclosure of this information or that might call for the information to be protected? But backers of the bill, like Michael Halpern of the Union of Concerned Scientists, say that asking researchers to prove their work merits an exemption is too onerous. It can take years. Their choice should not be between having to go to court and spending hundreds of hours of their time and maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars of university funds to adjudicate each and every Freedom of Information Act request. And that is an argument that could be made by every single public agency. Whitney Prout. You know, if that's the rationale, then the entire Public Records Act could be done away with. And I don't think anyone thinks that's in the best interest of the public. And then there's the slippery slope argument. The Open Records Act is a tool to help keep our elected officials and government employees accountable. So if public university professors are exempt, who's next? This is where we get into my basic argument, which is that universities are different. Polsky says... They're not your typical government official. They don't have coercive power over anyone in a way that undergirds public records laws. I mean, the point is democratic accountability of your elected representatives. That's not what university scholars are. But they are government employees. 
They are in the sense that they get taxpayer money. And so there should be accountability that attaches there. But I think it's a different kind of accountability. And what's really important is to protect the core mission of the university, which is not governance of the public. It's generating knowledge that's useful to society. Both sides of this debate in California can agree that harassment should not be condoned, that unfettered research is a public good, and that open records laws are critical to accountability. But they're still working on what it looks like to hold those values in the right balance. It's difficult for us as bill proponents, and it's really difficult for legislators because all of the people who usually agree, uh, at least in, in broad outline, are on different sides of this. Claudia Polsky. And you have a bunch of groups that all think they're doing, you know, what's good for inquiry and democracy, right? We're all all making the same core moral claim, but it leads us to a very different perspective on records requests. You know, everyone loves science and everyone loves freedom and government accountability, right? Whitney Prout. Those are all things that I think most people would agree are good and important things. And in some ways, they're pitted against each other in this bill. That's what makes the California effort, AB 700, such an interesting case study in how and even if it's possible to thread this particular needle. If you're looking for a radio story that gets to an answer, this isn't it. Just last week, the assembly member who brought forth the bill pulled it from consideration, at least for this year. In a statement posted to Facebook, Laura Friedman wrote, quote, My goal was to find common ground that preserves transparency while guarding against harassment from corporations and profiteers. They'll keep trying, she added. Perhaps easier said than done. For On the Media, I'm Alana Casanova-Burgess. Coming up, once upon a time, we voted for the candidate we liked best. Oh, please. That's so 2018. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. Since former Vice President Joe Biden officially announced his candidacy to lead the 2020 Democratic ticket, the big issue has ceased to be health care coverage or tax rates or child care or the environment. It isn't even about trust or stature or even charisma. The watchword has been electability. Well, right now, what people are thinking about in terms of Joe Biden is electability. We hear a lot about electability concerns regarding Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders. The Democrats are putting their number one issue as electability. They want to make sure that they can win in 2020. My focus group doesn't care who the nominee is. (laughs) They just care about winning. The wise investment of a vote is hardly a new concept, and it has been fed election cycle after election cycle by the media, who have long since set themselves up as arbiters of electability based on early polling, party support, donor bases, and war chest totals. Their determination, however dubious, thereupon governs allocation of press resources, the most supposedly electable candidates getting the most coverage. Thus, as in any horse race, the handicappers influence the betting. 
But this year, a new wrinkle, as Chuck Todd hinted at, and as the New Republic's Alex Perrine addressed in a recent essay, voters seem to be increasingly behaving like pundits, subordinating candidates' records and positions while themselves trying to divine electability. And what happens? The early polling based on the electability calculus establishes frontrunners, and the horse race coverage is more distorted than ever. What I find interesting is that by the old invisible primary standards, there are a lot of candidates who should be popping, as it were, who should be doing really well, who are kind of struggling. Perrine's essay is titled, Democrats Have Created an Electability Monster. When you talk about who the donors lined up behind or, or who party insiders lined up behind, they lined up very early on, a lot of them behind Kamala Harris, who has just been struggling in the polls. And when reporters talk to voters, they say, oh, we love her, but we don't think she can win. Hmm. And yet, by all the traditional metrics, she would seem to be a bona fide frontrunner. I mean, she is a U.S. senator perfect resume in an old-school sort of way, ex-prosecutor, ex-state attorney general, but little traction because those being polled have internalized this question of electability? What used to happen would be you could sort of tell voters who was electable, and you, you know the media had a role in this and the party had a big role in this. They would say, look, John Kerry's electable, and you might like Howard Dean, but he's not electable. And, you know, th- this was party people saying this and voters sort of internalizing it. What's crazy to me this cycle is that party insiders are trying to tell voters, look, Kamala Harris is electable. And they are so shell-shocked by Hillary Clinton losing that they're refusing to believe it. And the concept of electability has gotten out of the hands of the people who used to define it. I just want to make sure I understand this. You believe that voters have heard so much about electability over all this time and were so burned by Hillary Clinton that they are actually making that and not the candidate's own resume or policy agenda or charisma, the basis of their their support. They're trying to figure out what other voters are going to think about the race. Yeah, exactly. I use this as uh, to explain sort of why Joe Biden is doing so well in the polls and why people like Harris are not. And I don't mean to downplay his real support in the party, especially among older moderates, but I, you see a lot of both anecdotally and in polling, you see people telling pollsters and telling reporters, look, Joe Biden, probably not my first choice, but I think he can win. And their sort of calculus for this is, well, other people will find him agreeable. Eight Florida Democrats, most of them still undecided. Why are you already committed to Joe Biden? First and foremost, I think he can beat Donald Trump. I think that he reflects the values of Democrats enough to get support from all wings of the party. I think Joe Biden's the only candidate who could really pick up the moderate votes, the votes in the middle. Not that I like him the best, but imagining a sort of theoretical other voter in the future who will like him. You're describing family feud. Three pounds, survey said. Five pounds was the number one answer. Not what you think is the answer, but what you think the, uh, those polls think is the answer. Yes, exactly. What do you think the studio audience would say? Which candidate would they like the best? Well, I think what they don't realize is enthusiasm for a candidate is what makes a candidate electable. So saying 
I'm extremely enthusiastic about Elizabeth Warren, but because I'm worried about electability, I'm going to go with a person I'm less enthusiastic about, end up nominating someone no one is really that excited for. That is sort of a mistake I think Democrats have made in the past, and and they've downplayed it. And I feel like they should be worried if they think what is causing Biden to do so well is not actual enthusiasm for him as a candidate, but people who just tell themselves he's the only one who can beat Trump. Permit me, please, Alex, to go off on this brief tangent. Once upon a time, there used to be something called disqualifiers. I remember when then-presidential hopeful Joe Biden was essentially disqualified when a speech he gave uh, plagiarized a speech by British politician Neil Kinnock. Essentially, Biden said, everyone does it. The notion that every thought or notion or idea you'd have to go back and find and attribute to someone, I think is, quite frankly, uh, ludicrous. Biden has accumulated any number of negatives. Uh, The handsy, creepy Joe stuff, the non-apology to Anita Hill for his conduct during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings, his Iraq war support, his very long history of gaps before and during the Obama administration. In Delaware, the largest growth in population is Indian Americans moving from India. You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. Has Trump erased the disqualifier factor as a factor? Yeah, I mean, he really has, but in a way that's almost... Funny that the lesson taken from it would be that we have to look past the gaffes of Joe Biden and not that we can take a chance on an unlikely candidate, right? I would argue Republican voters were told the same electability stories that Democratic ones were, and the election of Trump was them throwing those concerns aside and saying, we don't care if the media says that they're unelectable. We we just like him, and then they won. What intrigued us about your piece is that it describes an electorate that has been sucked into the very illusion. It's, you know, it's a more crystalline form of political delusion. Yes. What is, I think, slightly perverse about it is that voters have trained themselves in many respects to act like pundits, deciding not based on their policy preferences or charisma or biography, but on sort of these lessons that you might hear on a Sunday morning panel show. And the thing is, predictions made on Sunday morning panel shows are not usually very good. (laughs) Pundits are not very good at their jobs. Having thousands or millions of amateurs trying to perform a job that no one is very good at and using that to decide who they're going to vote for, uh, it does just seem like a very strange recipe. Now, it seems inevitable that if voters are making decisions based on electability, that candidates will stop talking about arcane policy questions and start trumpeting their own electability. Is it happening? It's definitely happening, yeah. And I think just last weekend, Kamala Harris made a point very similar to the one I wrote about and that we were just discussing earlier. There has been a lot of conversation by pundits about the electability and who can speak to the Midwest. She was telling an audience, like, like, look, look at my resume. I'm an extremely mainstream, extremely electable candidate. You know, there are versions of that argument are made by all, just about all of them. Even Bernie Sanders has an electability argument for himself. I can defeat Trump in every poll that I have seen suggests that we are ahead of Trump. Some of his supporters will quietly tell you, like, 
look, he's an old white guy. <laughs> and uh, if you're going to Joe Biden because he's an old white guy, other voters will think the same thing. Every campaign has an electability argument they're trying to make. And when they're doing that, they're not talking about their program. They're not talking about what they plan to do in office and all these other things. A lot of the conversation on electability seems to go back to George McGovern and his catastrophic race against Richard Nixon in 1972. Have you set yourselves up to select a candidate who is necessarily more maybe representative of the Democratic base and less electable in a general election? Ooh. I'm looking at 1972, George McGovern. Why is it deemed so cautionary? One answer is that you have a huge number of people in leadership in the Democratic Party who were around for that election and it was the defining political moment basically of the beginning of their careers. And But, you know, it's funny because if liberals sort of have been learning that lesson of McGovern over and over and over and over again, conservatives took the exact opposite approach with Goldwater who lost – Conservatives regrouped, the the right regrouped, and they built around Goldwaterism and and just ran it again and eventually reshaped the country. So I think some of the the lessons of McGovern have been overlearned in part intentionally to prevent the Democrats from moving too far to the left, and and in part just because you know we're talking about Democrats in power who witnessed Reagan and just thought to themselves, we just can't win if we try to run as liberals. Does everybody have amnesia? I mean, Hillary Clinton was a shoo-in, obviously. There's no way a buffoon like Donald Trump could defeat her. She was just far too entrenched. When it comes to Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, many analysts see them as inevitable nominees in the 2016 election. Trump was unelectable. Obama was unelectable. Jimmy Carter came from nowhere. Harry Truman was the president of the United States, and he was deemed unelectable. It reminds me of the famous William Goldman line about Hollywood tastemakers. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Presidential cycle after presidential cycle. Who do we blame for that? <laughs> I mean, everyone. I don't know. At the same time, you can overinterpret the last election and you can forget all the lessons of all the other elections. It's true that no one knows anything. You know, especially people don't know who voters are going to respond to, and yet there's an entire industry that has a lot of money riding on hiring people to say, oh, I know who voters are going to respond to. It seems like the best thing to do would just be to, you know, report on the political history and not try to make predictions and then report on the candidates, you know, their policies and their biographies and things like that. But obviously, like, what people want to read and what they want to see is who's going to win. Alex, thank you very much. Thank you. Alex Perrine is a staff writer with The New Republic. The piece we're talking about is titled, Democrats Have Created an Electability Monster. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leia Fetter, John Henrahan, and Asa Chetavedi. We had more help from Zandra Ellen, and our show was edited this week by executive producer Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. It is alleged that Brooke Gladstone will be back someday. I'm Bob Garfield. is
is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.